Welcome to Agri Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice and the supporting sponsor of Agri Farm, the Bill Gatt College of Pharmacy. It is the very last day of April, and what an April it has been. Uh, 2020. A lot to get to, whole lots to talk about, so let's just dig right in. What a month. All right, so if we can, let's go back to February 19th. Now, February 19th, uh, the it seems like a lifetime ago, right? Um, well, the FDA rejected um, Pembrolizumab, or Keytruda's, application for an every six-week dosing update to the label. So 400 milligrams every six months or every six weeks was rejected by the FDA on February 19th. Now, t- that seemed like a long time ago. And it was, right? So in in uh, February 19th, these are the number of cases of COVID-19 in the following countries. China said 408. And this is from the John Hopkins website that's recording this. Uh, the US, UK, Australia, Canada, Spain, Ireland, Germany, none. As of 428, the numbers in those nations are, as, as I state, zero, according to what China has said in Johns Hopkins tract. Uh, the U.S., 24,000, sorry, these are number of cases per day. Cases per day. 24,000 plus in the U.S., 4,000 plus in the U.K., 23 in Australia, 1,500 in Canada, 2,700 in Spain, uh, 230 in Ireland, and 1,200 in Germany reported on February 28th. Uh, sorry, on April 28th. Uh, and I mentioned April 28th because on April 28th, just two days ago, the U.S. approved uh, Pembrolizumab's every six-week dosing update to the label. So a lot can change in, in two months and change. So if we go back to this original rejection letter that they sent, uh, of course, we don't know what was sent. But this, um, this submission by the Pembro folks to get this every six-week dosing was based off of modeling and pharmacokinetic, or PK, data from an abstract presented at ASCO 2018, uh, abstract number uh, 3062. Uh, and so it appears to be an extrapolation of their 2 mg per kg or 200 milligrams every three weeks to 400. Kind of like saying... You know, if 10 milligrams of lisinopril drops your blood pressure by X percent, 20 milligrams will, will, will drop it by, you know, we can predict that based on the exposure response relationship or ER relationship. Well, the, the FDA rejected that. And we get a little bit of a clue in why based on uh, the document uh, update to the, to the label. So um, FDA approved 400 milligrams every six weeks for all indications for pembrolizumab. Now, it is an accelerated approval. Uh, based on PK modeling and exposure response analysis. Now, a continuation of this approval might be contingent upon verification of of efficacy and confirmatory studies. So what changed in two months besides pandemic? Uh, Well, so it looks like they incorporated some PK data into their model that they hadn't two months ago. And it looks to be that they incorporated PK data from a 10 mg per kg early study where they were seeing if a, a much higher dose of Pembro had any more effect than the standard um, than the standard dose. Uh, and, you know, I'm not a, a, a pharmacokinetic expert other than the fact that I took, you know, six hours of pharmacokinetics in pharmacy school. Um, but this is, I think, reasonable to say, hey, let's look at some, some uh, 
hopefully, ideally, I guess, real data, but modeling data on a higher dose. Because if you're going to give a higher dose every six weeks, we'd like to know that the drug hangs around for the same amount of time, that sort of stuff. So I think that's fair and reasonable. Long story short, this is good for social distancing during uh, COVID-19. I do wonder if it is as good for toxicity assessment, because now patients are going to be coming back in not every three weeks, but every six weeks, probably for their LFTs. Um, and, you know, are you going to see some people that have grade three or four transaminitis that you would have caught as grade one or two if they'd uh, been there three weeks earlier? Um, every six weeks is probably the perfect time to do, like, uh, thyroid function tests, um, but maybe not for LFTs and other stuff. Um, Somewhat related to this, someone reached out to me on uh, Instagram asking for ideas or how do you come up with ideas for, for residency projects? And, um, you know, it depends on your institution, but if you give a lot of Pembro and you've been given it every three weeks and you switch right now to every six weeks, you've got a nice quasi-experimental uh, model to look at uh, how well did we do tracking LFTs, uh, thyroid function tests, whatever you would want to monitor uh, pre and post. And, and were there um, was there more severe... Uh, toxicity with the longer duration uh, of treatment. Uh, Because we don't have um, patient-level data. We have PK and modeling data uh, suggesting that um, giving this every six weeks will have the same amount of toxicity and same amount of efficacy based on predictions of prior prior models. Uh, So right there, you know, that would be a, a reasonable residency project to do down the road. Okay, the day after this, April 29th, the FDA approved Neraparib, brand name Zildjula, uh, for maintenance of ovarian cancer and primary peritoneal carcinoma and fallopian tube cancer in uh, patients uh, who received platinum chemo and then achieved a complete response and partial response. Now, this is based off of uh, the PRIMA study published in December 2019 in New England Journal of Medicine. This sounds a lot like the Olaparib approval. However, the Olaparib approval is also for patients complete response or partial response after first-line platinum-based chemo, but only in a mutated BRCA patient population. The Neraparib approval is for all patients. Um, Now, the primary efficacy analysis uh, was PFS in the homologous repair deficient subcategory, which was half of the whole patient population, Um, uh, and then in the whole patient population. So the hazard ratio, uh, the benefit is largest for those with mutated BRCA, and then it's a little bit smaller for those with non-BRCA mutations, but still had some homologous repair deficiency. And then the smallest benefit was seen in those who had, you know, basically uh, normal, normal amount of homologous repair. There was still benefit, though. Uh, so we're now, this this kind of is a, a potential improvement um, because you could add this PARP inhibitor, neraparib, to potentially all patients with ovarian cancer. Um, speaking of Olaparib, uh, Olaparib had a uh, study called the Profound Study published in the New England Journal of Medicine a couple days ago. So this is, uh, Olaparib is Linparza, uh, published online February, tw- February, April 28th, uh, and it's Olaparib in metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer uh, with, they don't say this in the title, but it's patients with homologous repair deficiency. Um, so the buzzword here in their abstract is biomarker selected. And if you put biomarker selected in your, in your abstract or your grant, that's good, right? Uh, so this is looking at the biomarkers are looking at 15, uh, alterations and patients had to have one of 15 alterations, uh, something like BRCA, 
one, BRCA2, uh, PALB2, and these were identified via Foundation 1 CDX, which is an FDA-approved test uh, to, to do this. Uh, so there were more than 4,400 patients screened, and of those, about 400 had tissue available for the Foundation 1 testing. Of those 4,000 with tissue available, to about 2,800 actually got sequenced, um, and of those 2,800, about 800 uh, had one of the 15 alterations, and about half of that 800 did not have, um, did not meet the inclusion criteria. So you ended up with 387 patients enrolled in the study from an initial cohort of potentially more than 4,000. Uh, so 8.7% of the patients they originally enrolled for screening ended up enrolling on the study. So they took those 387 patients who had uh, metastatic castration resistant or castrate resistant prostate cancer who had had progression on either enzalutamide and or abiraterone uh, and about 40% of them had received docetaxel or ataxane and they uh, get put into one of three cohorts. Cohort A are those patients with one of the three mutations, BRCA1, BRCA2, or ATM and ATM is the ataxia telangiectasia mutated gene which is an inherited condition that uh, increases patients' risk of cancer. Uh, so those patients in, in cohort 8 had those three mutations, BRCA1, BRCA2, ATM. They got a lap rib. That's 162 there. Cohort B was the other 12 mutations of the 15, and they got a lap rib as well. That's an N of 94. And then the control arm was either enzalutamide or abiraterone, and that was 131 patients. Now, presumably, and physician uh, discretion was used on which one they got. Now, presumably, if you had abiraterone first and that was your most recent progression, you would do enzalutamide. If you had enzalutamide and then progressed, you'd be on abiraterone. A couple issues with this. About 20%, uh, 18% of the patients in the control arm had already received both enzalutamide and abiraterone, which means 18% of the patients in the control arm got put on a drug they had previously progressed on. It's it's not good care. Um, we also, um, based on the recent publication in Lancet Oncology, it appears that abiraterone followed by enzalutamide is the, the better sequencing of these antiandrogens. Um, so with those caveats and how much you might be able to, to take into the, uh, the efficacy analysis, what we do see is a median PFS that's improved in the cohort A, it's the BRCA1 and the ATM group compared to the enzalutamide abiraterone group. 7.4 months of um, median progression-free survival versus 3.6 in the control arm. Uh, there, there is a smaller benefit in cohort B. That's the other 12 mutations. Most of those were CDK12. That median PFS was 5.8 compared to 3.5. Um, so most of the... Uh, activity was seen in the BRCA1, BRCA2, and if you break it down in the ATM group, and if you break it down further, almost all of that benefit was in BRCA2 patients and BRCA1 patients, but BRCA2 made it up the, the vast junk, vast hunk of those patients. Uh, the ATM versus uh, control curves uh, uh, overlapped, actually. Um, overall response rate, objective response rate, 33% uh, with the BRCA uh, patients and ATM to uh, Olaparib versus 22% with cohort B and then 2 and 4% respectively with the Inza and Abiraterone. Uh, median overall survival um, was not statistically significant unlike the median PFS. Um, so you had a median overall survival of 18 and a half months with Olaparib in cohort A compared to 15 months in cohort C. So small magnitude of benefit that wasn't significant. However, 80% of patients in the control arm did cross over to a lap rib, uh, which is good for them. 
Um, there is also a potential safety signal here because 4% of patients in the elaborate arm had a PE. It was 11 patients, which is not something that we see or think of with a PARP inhibitor causing PE. So 4% PE in elaborate versus 1% in the control arm. Uh, you would really, really, really want to see uh, these analyses done without the 18% or 20% in the whole population of folks who had both Enza and abiraterone previously and uh, progressed on both of those. Um, you would wonder um, if there is still a, a, an improvement in median PFS and progression-free survival uh, if you had a fair comparison. Okay. So let's move on to, uh, I'm not sure how to say this, uh, moniker, uh, or is it moniker, like like someone's name, like the moniker of this podcast is Oncofarm, um, but this is spelled like monarch, the butterfly, but the last letter H is capitalized in capital E-R because we're looking at HER2 amplified patients. So this study is abemocyclib plus trastuzumab plus or minus full vestrant versus trastuzumab plus chemo. This was published uh, April 27th in Lancet Oncology. Uh, abemocyclib is Verzenia, and trastuzumab, of course, is uh, Herceptin, Fulvestrin, and Fazodex. Now, in vitro data suggest that uh, CDK4 and 6 might mediate HER2 resistance, and we're used to, to seeing CDK4-6 inhibitors in all metastatic breast cancer patients that are HER2 unamplified. This is looking at this HER2 amplified cohort. There's a phase one study of 11 patients receiving a bemocyclib uh, that are HER2 positive, and four of them had a response, which led to this phase two study that was done in like 70 plus centers across 14 countries, uh, 237 patients with hormone, uh, I'm sorry, with HER2 amplified metastatic breast cancer and, a hit, and had uh, received two prior lines of HER2-directed therapy uh, for advanced breast cancer. Uh, and that included trastuzumab in almost everybody, trastuzumab imtanzine or TDM1 in almost everybody, but only half of patients had received pertuzumab, um, which would be kind of the, the upfront standard of care, at least in the United States, would be trastuzumab, pertuzumab, uh, first line, then TDM, second line, and then we've talked about trastuzumab durextecan and tucatinib. Um, and just for reference, this study took place between 2016-2018. Pertuzumab was FDA approved in the U.S. in 2012. So pertuzumab was around when this study was going on. So it's a little fishy why uh, that was not a requirement for inclusion is to have received pertuzumab. So anyway, 79 patients get uh, put onto one of three arms. So 79 into each of these arms. Uh, Bemocyclib plus trastuzumab and fulvestrant. And then just a bemocyclib plus trastuzumab and then trastuzumab plus chemo. Uh, Medium PFS, uh, 8.3 months uh, in the triplet arm, 5.7 months in the arm that did not receive full vestrant. So that's just a bemocyclib and trastuzumab. And then the same number, 5.7 months with trastuzumab plus chemo. All right. So the Kaplan-Meier curves for a bemocyclib and trastuzumab are the same as with trastuzumab plus chemo. Uh, When you added full vestrant to a bemocyclib, plus trastuzumab, you did see um, the Kaplan-Meier curves overlap for six months, and then they separate after that. And and the hazard ratio for the log rank test there is P uh, equals 0.05. Now, I will quote from the statistical analysis subsection of the method section, quote, the two-sided alpha of 0.2, equivalently a one-sided alpha of 0.1, is a commonly used alpha, level for phase two clinical trials, uh, end quote. Uh, 
Uh, so in alpha 0.05, uh, they go on to say um, is used in um, phase three studies, but it's okay to use a, a higher alpha in phase two because it's a phase two. We don't want to do all these patients. And that's, uh, that's fair. I think that's fair to say. What? When they write that in a study, what that means to me is don't base decisions based on the study that we're writing because, you know, we'd have to do the phase three study at the appropriate alpha. So here are the takeaways. Um, 50% did not receive pertuzumab. So, you know, there's a one in three chance they got chemo plus only trastuzumab, like half of these patients. I would not put someone I loved on this study uh, if that were the case, uh, if they hadn't received pertuzumab. Uh, fulvestrin's important here with uh, our CDK4 inhibitor. We didn't see any benefit compared to just trastuzumab that plus chemo. Um, and again, you would want to use chemo plus trastuzumab and pertuzumab or something like that. Uh, the, your control arm here is not much of a control. So maybe after phase three study versus chemo plus trastuzumab and pertuzumab or chemo plus some other uh, uh, multiple blockading of HER2, uh, you might see uh, this. And the benefit does not, you know, my guess is it's not superior to an adequate HER2 targeted therapy in the third line plus chemo, but maybe it's as good. Maybe that allows patients to omit chemotherapy uh, for, for a longer time. And maybe that has quality of life benefits. Maybe. Okay, the last study I'm going to talk about is Griffin, uh, G-R-I-F-F-I-N, not to be confused with Griffin spelled with O-N, which is my favorite pub of all time in Charleston, South Carolina. So this was uh, um, a little bit of background first. So daratumumab, or Darzalex, plus bortezomib, plus thalidomide, plus dex was FDA-approved for first-line treatment of myeloma patients who are transplant-eligible. That's based on the Cassiopeia study. Now, in the U.S., we don't use thalidomide a whole lot. It's got more neuropathy than, than lilidomide or revlimid, got more somnolence, more VTE, so we don't use that. So Griffin is a small study for myeloma, uh, about 200 patients, um, looking at uh, Dara VRD, so daratumumab plus V velcade or bortezomib R revlimid or lilidomide index uh, versus VRD, and this is four cycles of induction and then auto transplant and then two cycles of consolidation with either VRD plus or minus Dara, followed by maintenance with lilidomide plus or minus Dara. So if you were on the daratumumab arm, you got it all the way through uh, induction, then consolidation, and then also as part of maintenance. Uh, up for, I think it was uh, two years or, or 22 cycles or something. Uh, the primary endpoint here is stringent complete response rate. And this is, uh, you know, the International Myeloma Working Group uh, response criteria. So a complete response is uh, negative immunofixation, no plasma cytoma, and less than 5% plasma cell, 5% clonal plasma cells in the marrow. A stringent complete response is a complete response plus some more stringent criteria. Uh, that being a normal free light chain ratio and then zero clonal cells in the marrow. So why would you do a study with a primary endpoint is stringent complete response? Uh, that's a surrogate marker. We've and everyone talks about complete response as a um, as a marker for drug approval in a study that has, you know, an arm that has about 100 patients is somewhat laughable. Many people have been talking about this online. That's basically what this is. We have 100 patients in one arm, and we're looking at comparing that stringent complete response versus another. Well, the reason I think you would do this study is if you see some benefit, then you would do a larger study powered for overall survival or, or some meaningful patient-oriented outcome as opposed to uh, stringent complete response. So it's essentially proof of added activity 
in the upfront setting? Well, there was uh, a stringent complete response rate of 42.4% in the Dara arm versus 32% in the control arm. Now, that is a one-sided p-value of 0 0.068. Uh, they used the same... Um, uh, they used a one-sided p-value of 0 0.1, which is basically a two-sided p-value of 0 0.2, like the moniker folks use. So they did meet their um, they did meet their statistical uh, significance by having that p-value less than 0.1 because they they used a one-sided um, alpha of 0.1 is uh, was their a priori. Uh, assessment. So that was considered statistically significant based on the methods of the study. Uh, now, stringent complete response rate. And what I think people are excited about here is that the stringent complete response rate uh, got better over time. The first SCR I just told you was at the end of transplant. Uh, it improved from 42.4% in the DARE arm to 62.6% after the consolidation and after some of the maintenance at a median follow-up of 22 months. So 62.6% versus 45.4%. That was a p-value of 0.017, so uh, stronger separation there. And then the myeloma experts are really excited by this MRD negative rate at a, a value of 10 to the negative fifth of 51% in the DARE arm versus 20.4%. Uh, in the control arm, and that's a p-value of uh, less than 0.001. And if you're going to cure myeloma, you got to get probably to MRD negativity. Now, does that transplant to any improvement in median PFS? You know, too early to tell. The PFS curves are perfectly overlapped for 21 months, and then right before the 24-month PFS assessment, uh, they drop a little bit in the control arm. So the 24-month PFS uh, was 95.8% with DARA versus 89.8% in the control arm. Now, as you might expect, using four drugs versus three, there's more toxicity. Uh, about twice as much overall neutropenia in grade three and four neutropenia, so 41.4% grade three or four neutropenia with DARA versus 21.6%. Uh, upper respiratory tract infection, 63% with DARA versus 44%. And then peripheral neuropathy was lower in the daratumab arm, just under 60% compared to 72.5%. I don't think dara makes, and they use the same doses of everything here in vortezomib, but my guess is that people who progressed early and went on to other treatment or whatever, um, that happened more in the no dara arm, and they ended up getting other drugs that, that cause neuropathy, like, uh, other, um, like more vortezomib or something like that. And then additionally, 14% uh, more... Um, patients in the DARE arm required plerixifor uh, in their mobilization for uh, autologous stem cell transplant. So um, DARA has better activity when it's given earlier. Whether that relates or correlates to long-term improvement in, in overall survival or leads to cure, that question remains to be answered. Um, my first question when I look at this, um, and this is how I think of a lot of, a lot of diseases that are considered incurable, is it's a little bit like uh, a chess match. And so you're thinking uh, several moves ahead. And so what do you do after uh, these patients relapse? Can you give them DARA again? Um, you know, if, if we use all of our best drugs up front, what do we have in a second line setting? And does that, does that make a difference in terms of overall survival, um, you know, multiple years down the line? Because if you do power a study for overall survival, nowadays in myeloma, you're talking... Uh, probably a decade of, of follow-up to see that, or at least five years, um, if I had to make a semi-educated guess. So that's what I have today. A lot of stuff going on. I really thought 
um, you know, FDA might uh, do their emergency uh, approval of remdesivir. It'll probably happen as soon as I post the podcast. Uh, but since everyone's talking about it, I'll throw in my two cents about remdesivir. You know, the Chinese study published in Lancet uh, used to be the Lancet, I think, and then and they changed it to Lancet, just like just like Facebook. Um, didn't show any improvement compared to placebo. Now, if you look at that study, the remdesivir arm was quite a bit sicker than the control arm. Uh, they were older. Uh, it kind of looked like the randomization, uh, they skewed things to try and give their sicker patients remdesivir. Uh, I haven't seen the NIH study. I uh, only heard Fauci talk about it. Uh, and uh, the NIH didn't have a press release, so there was a statistically significant improvement in time to resolution or time to improvement, 11 versus 15 days, uh, which would be good to help decrease a surge of patients in a hospital. Good for people as well. Um, overall survival, I don't think, was statistically significant. Um, it was... Unless you used a one-sided alpha of 0.1, maybe, it would have been significant. Uh, it was, I think, 8% versus 11.6%. Uh, so some activity, some modest activity, uh, some hope, maybe. Well, that's all I have for today. Thank you once again for listening to Anka Farm. You can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetNet. Follow the podcast on, at Twitter, on Twitter, and on Instagram at AnkaFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.